All right, so in back in the law office, we have our defective television. So sorry that the bottom 20% of the screen is cut off, but you have your handouts. So there are handouts over there next to the treats, as well as the sign in. There are pens somewhere. If anybody needs a pen, I've got other pens. So. But thank you guys for uh, joining with us tonight. So our question, our problem is who is Jesus? What are some common responses if you were to ask the man on the street who Jesus is? Ronald. He was a good moral teacher. He was a good moral teacher. Yes. A man example. Of a man of peace. Okay. Anybody else? Any other common thoughts? He was a fairy tale. He was a fairy tale. Yeah. He was a figment of your imagination. Yeah, definitely. He was a prophet. He was a prophet. Okay. Definitely. I asked uh, two of the waitresses this morning at Bible study who Jesus was, and uh, one of they had very, very uh, polar opposite responses. One of them said, the first thing she said was that he was creator. So I was like, oh, we're going to have to have a follow-up conversation. <laughs> creator, he was helper, comforter, and then savior, she threw into the end. Wow. Somebody's been eavesdropping. We're going yeah. to be talking to her again, where she came up with those things. The other one... Just looked at me and put her hand on her hip and kind of gave me that look and said, I don't know. <laughs> she goes, I How feel about like your eggs. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, I feel like we talk about this. I'm like, we do talk about this, and we're going to keep talking about this. <laughs> That's the point. Um, but why does this question matter? It's everything. It's everything. <laughs> the Christian faith is all about Jesus. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, and specifically God, right, then everything falls apart. Uh, I'll read you a nice prolific quote from our friend William Lane Craig. He says, the Christian religion stands or falls with the person of Jesus Christ. Judaism, Judaism could not survive, or sorry, Judaism could survive without Moses, Buddhism without Buddha, Islam without Muhammad, but Christianity could not survive without Christ. This is because unlike most other world religions, Christianity is a belief in a person, a genuine historical individual, but at the same time, a special individual whom the church regards as not only human, but divine. At the center of any Christian apologetic, therefore, must stand the person of Christ. And very important for the doctrine of Christ's person is this, are the personal claims of the historical Jesus. Did he claim to be divine? Or did he regard himself as a prophet? Or was he the exemplification of some highest human qualities, such as love or faith? Who did Jesus of Nazareth claim to be? Dun, dun, dun. So we are going to talk about that tonight. Uh, my friend R.C. Sproul says, No person in history has provoked so much study, criticism, prejudice, or devotion as Jesus of Nazareth. And so as always, we look at our worldviews, go back to them our three worldviews, and how they would answer the question. And this is extremely important. This is where you get into the reality that someone's worldview colors the answer to a specific question like, who is Jesus? Because of presuppositions and preconditioning and all of that. So an atheist would probably respond something along the lines that we can never know the true historical Jesus, assuming he existed at all. Right? Like Piero said, he's a, what did you say, a fairy tale? Yeah, so someone who is not going to subscribe to a, a biblical worldview and doesn't believe in God, why would he believe in Jesus? But they might know that he was, it was historical. So then a common pushback on the atheist side is, well, we're never going to know the true historical Jesus. All we know is what is in this thing right here. And this is just an invention of the church. This is just telling you exactly what the church wants you to know about Jesus. This is not a historical book. This is a book of fairy tales, right? And so hence, you may have heard quests for the historical Jesus, things like the Jesus Seminar and whatnot. So an atheist might respond like that. You can never know the true historical Jesus, assuming he existed at all. Selfism. Remember the worldview that has self at the center as the all-determining being of everything? Might respond, Jesus is who I understand him to be. If I understand Jesus to be a good teacher, then he's a good teacher. If I understand him to be kind to everybody, then he's just kind to everybody. 
It's very individualistic. In other words, prove it to me. I am the arbiter of truth of who Jesus is and is not. It's that expressive self. I want Jesus to be who I need Jesus to be or not be, or who I feel that Jesus is. And third, theism, of course, the worldview with God at the center, says that Jesus is the Messiah, God the Son. This is the biblical worldview. The reality is, if we're going to cling to that, we can't escape using Scripture as the primary source for proving who Jesus was. But first, we have to confront the the issue, again, of the historical reliability of the Gospels, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about what what the Gospels uh, purport Jesus to be. And so let's look at some, I'm going to look at three common objections and responses. I got three of them, but uh, cards on the table. I'm going to spend the majority of the time on number two, because that's like where the lion's share of all this is. But let's do an easy one first, that uh, Jesus didn't exist. Hey there. Objection number one, Jesus didn't exist. It's pretty easy to refute, because there's lots of history that said Jesus did exist. And not just biblical history, but extra biblical history, like a guy uh, named Josephus, a Jewish historian from the first century. Several Roman historians would say the same thing, that there was this guy Jesus. He actually existed. He walked around. Early church fathers confirmed all of this by talking to eyewitnesses and stuff. So it's not too often they're going to run into somebody that says Jesus never existed. Anybody ever run into anybody that just said Jesus flat out didn't exist? You have? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I have a Facebook friend, high school guy. No, high school with him. He's Jewish. He just doesn't believe in oh, Jesus. So he, t- he was Jewish. Oh, my and goodness. The so he just took the position yeah, that Jesus yeah, never existed. Okay. That's a tough or one to cling to. Or, or isn't well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's better. Well, not better, so, but that's more common. We've just agreed to disagree. Yeah. Yeah, so you won't see that objection very much, and you could easily respond to that objection and just say, well, it's not just the Bible that says Jesus existed. There are lots of other things that say Jesus existed. But here's kind of a bigger one. Objection number two, I'm getting ahead of myself now, is that the Jesus in the Gospels was created by the church, and so we can't know who actually Jesus was. And first, we've got to kind of face that and say, look, we all have presuppositions that will affect what we accept as truth or not. This is where the worldview really gets into coloring who you would say Jesus is. If you have a presupposition in your mind about God and about Jesus, that's really going to impact what you will accept as historical truth. So worldview determines perspective. Perspective then determines belief. And so we've got to remember, you know, you're kind of looking back on history and you're interpreting it. Everybody interprets history to some degree. And you're going to do it probably based on your presuppositions, right? So example, uh, atheists would have to overcome a lot of worldview bias, wouldn't they? To, to have, to give historical claims of Christianity a fair analysis. Like the chances of you having someone who is a firmly entrenched, a discussion with someone who's a firmly entrenched atheist and give them a fair shot that says, no, I'm, I'm unbiased, I'm going to really look at this claim, it's going to be really hard to do that because they're firmly embedded already in their position before they come to the question of who Jesus is, right? So sometimes it's good to just ask somebody up front, like, what are you looking for? Like, if you ever, would you ever believe if I could give you all the evidence in the like, just throw the cards on the table. Sometimes that just exposes somebody's presupposition. You know, what amount of evidence would I have to give you for you to believe that Christianity is true? If they're honest, they'll say right up front, there's no amount of evidence that you could give me. What is that revealing? What? Yeah. Hard heart and just one that's not ready to believe no matter what it is. So then it's not really a matter of evidence, then, is it? Mm. So that's 
that's something that you read off the bat because an uh, atheist will fly into battle with a flag that says evidence, evidence, evidence. And then if you kind of call them out right away, well, it's not really about evidence then, is it? Because there's no, ma there's no level of evidence I can give you. <coughs> Maybe they would even say that. Um, so it's a good thing to get going. The honest ones would say no because their presuppositions won't allow it. But remember, guys, we can't prove Christianity beyond all doubt. We can't do that. There's always going to be some level of doubt. I don't want to shock anybody, but there is some level of doubt on days of me. Like, is this all? Am I nuts? Like, is this all? <laughs> like, is this stuff true? Like, did, and you know, and maybe it's that big, right? But then I, 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 I take encouragement from the scriptures. I take encouragement in what God did in my own life. I take encouragement from creation, right? But, but we're never going to be able to prove Jesus beyond all doubt. Hey, Barb. And there was a good quote um, from uh, Mr. Craig again that said, the goal of historical knowledge is to obtain probability, not mathematical certainty. So you can't, like, look back in history and then make it 100% sure, like, you know, you did it. It's an open and shut case, right? That's never, and that's not the goal of apologetics, and that's not the goal of evangelism. You're never going to be at 100%. You're going to have to, we've talked about it. Place doubts, right? Ask questions. Get them to think about their position. And then let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Remember, because it's not up to us anyway. Right? So then the real response from us is that, no, we actually can know Jesus from Scripture. And then again, ask questions. Okay, well, if the Gospels aren't historically reliable, why aren't they historically? Ask the question of that person. They just made a statement. The Gospels are not historically reliable. Okay, why not? Help me understand that. And so this is just a real quick review from last week because we talked about it last week. Uh, remember that the Gospels were eyewitness accounts. They were scribes, or they were scribes for the eyewitness account. In the case of Mark, he was a scribe for Peter. In the case of Luke, he was a scribe for Paul. Remember, they were first started by controlled oral tradition. We have verses in the Bible that tell us that we've received these things from you, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 11. Remember, they were written down thousands of times and then circulated throughout the church. And then we have two forms of evidence that we can use, internal and external. Internal biblical evidence that the church immediately recognized Scripture as Scripture. Remember in 1 Thessalonians, for example, Paul said, I rejoice because you didn't receive it as the word of men. You received it as the word of God, as it truly is. And remember how uh, in 1 Timothy, Paul was quoting what Jesus said as scripture already, right alongside the Old Testament. So there's internal biblical evidence that says, no, they recognized it as scripture right away. And then there's the external evidence from the church fathers, and I have those the same three quotes in your notes um, that we had last week. One from each century, first, second, and third, uh, just uh, unequivocally saying the church fathers were like, no, this is, this is scripture from God. That's, that's what that is. So push back a little bit. I mean, that's always the first one, just to make sure you're on the same playing, level playing field. Is that, <laughs> what are we talking about? Why aren't? the scripture is historically reliable, right? And then push back with what we know, why scripture is what it is. Any questions, thoughts? I mean, at any time, definitely shoot up a hand for anything that you're thinking. All right, so that's one response, is to ask that question. But a deeper response from that yes, is, if the Bible isn't historically reliable, then... Can you give me an example of a mistake? And then wait and blink and wait, see if they have one. Many times they won't. Sometimes they will. But see again what we're doing? We're asking questions always. Okay, so it's not reliable. What do you mean by that? What's a mistake? Show me a mistake in the Bible. The vast majority of mistakes can be easily explained if we know our Bibles. Because there are no mistakes in the Bible. There could be paradoxes, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. 
There could be mysteries that we don't understand, but that doesn't mean they're mistakes. So ask them, what's a mistake? <clears throat> so here's one. The tearing of the curtain in the temple after the death of Jesus didn't happen. That could be an assumption, right? So pretend. So pretend you say, "Hey, uh, Jenna, cool story, bro." But you know, I, I do know a mistake because the tearing of the temple and the tearing of the curtain in the temple that just didn't happen. So that's that's a mistake. Here's the reasons why. Maybe maybe I would say because Matthew's account is completely different because Matthew's account not only says the curtain was torn in two, but Matthew's account said there was an earthquake, and then Matthew's account said that people rose from the dead and walked around. So why don't the other Gospels say that? must be a mistake. You know, also there are no other historical accounts anywhere. Nobody else. you think Josephus would have said something about this curtain that was torn in two, so it didn't happen. And then last, but certainly not least, it is scientifically impossible for something just to be torn in two, especially if you know anything about the temple curtain itself several hundred pounds and like 25 feet tall and you know it's not just going to spontaneously combust into two pieces by itself it's scientifically possible how would we respond a little live example your friend has just laid out his case and said no there's no way there's no way that the, the mm. curtain torn in two by itself it's scientifically impossible Besides, Matthew has contradictory accounts. Not true. And nobody else has it. Go find, go find some other, you know, scientific American that says Josephus said it. How would you respond? I would respond by saying, of course it's scientific. <laughs> We're talking about the God who spoke the universe into creation. Mm. I don't think tearing a veil is really much of an issue for him. Yeah. Anything Good. outside the bounds of natural... Science and materialism is a miracle. Yeah. He operates outside the bounds of yeah. Definitely define terms on who God is. Right? We're talking about God as the Bible says he's God, as the Bible presents him to be God, creating the earth from nothing and sustaining it with his words. Tearing a curtain in half is nothing. What about, what else? Go ahead. To, you know, different perspectives. If you and I saw the same event, yeah. we would document it differently. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So just because Matthew said there was an earthquake and there was people walking around who were dead, doesn't mean that you know, Mark made a mistake right. when he said it. He, did, he just didn't feel, he didn't mention it. Yep, just didn't mention it. It's not a mistake. If I come home and Melanie asked who was at Bible this morning, Bible study this morning, and I say Piero was there and Justin was there, and Ken was there. And, you know, does that mean that, you know, uh, Harold wasn't there? No, Harold was there, but I just didn't say it. Right. I didn't make a mistake. I just didn't say it. So, so we, those are good ones. What, uh, what, any, anyone else? What about historical accounts? Why don't we, have, how can we push back on that one? Uh, didn't, didn't the uh, priests, um, Jewish priests expunge any any records about Jesus from their uh, from their records. Uh, I, I know I read that somewhere. Um, it, it, they made an. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if they actually did or not. It would make sense if they did. But that would be logically consistent, right? Well, why would there be? Yeah. Like man. you're you're just reinforcing. <laughs> You know, Jesus claims to deity and what happened on the cross. If there's something in history hanging out that says, no, it was crazy. With that in mind, it's, you know, there's not going to be uh, the general public isn't in the temple to see the court curtain get torn in two. Yep. Uh, so, you know, you're not going to have secular historians there witnessing it to write about it. Yep. Um, and I don't know that that's something that is necessarily circulated in the culture yep. outside of, outside of uh, yeah. that group. You could ask a question right back by saying, well, why would they? Like, you would think that they would cover that up as quickly as possible because that's only going to verify who Jesus was. I'm sure they had that curtain down. They went to Costco immediately, got another one, put it back up, and burned that other sucker and you know, didn't talk about it ever again. So, Yeah, so things like that, you can, you can work through logically and do that. And in order to do that, 
Don't be afraid of reading the other side. Here's a great book that'll drive you crazy, but I really recommend it. I was really mad at my professor for making me read this book, but Bart Ehrman is like the Mac Daddy of the atheist uh, camp, right? Best-selling author. Um, he was a former Christian, okay? So you can tell, he's got a little bit of an ax to grind already. So talk about presuppositions. And now talk about being a multi-million dollar bestseller. There's no way that he can go back on his claims because his whole payday is going to be gone. So he's got to keep writing these books. Right? And, and if you read this book, it's going to drive you insane. But he's going to work through all of his arguments. That's where I got that from, is this book. right? And he's going to push back. And you're going to see how he pushes back. And you're going to see that he's got nothing. <laughs> he really has nothing. There's like one or two things in this whole book that I'm like, wow, that really is a good question. But it's so inconsequential. Who cares? Right? So read the other side. Don't be afraid of this. Like, that's how, this, I think I tweeted after I read this and I tagged him in my tweet that just said, thank you so much for writing that book. It boosted my faith like you would not believe. Block. I hardly think he even read it. He read it. The point was my faith was increased by reading that book. I'm like, this is, this is the best they got? Like, if you know your Bible, you can de defeat all of these things. And so know the other side, practice the other side, think about the responses, right? Okay. So, yeah, give, an, give me an example of a mistake, and then don't forget to, to try to refute it, but also know your Bibles to refute it as well. And again, keep thinking in those categories we were talking about last time, because there are no mistakes in the Bible, we know that. But is it a paradox? Just, just does it seem like a mistake and it's actually not a mistake, right? Or is it a mystery? Just because we can't understand something doesn't mean it's a mistake, okay? All right, let's look at another one, another uh, response to the Gospels not being historically reliable. Here's a big one. So if the Gospels were a creation of the church and are historically unreliable, then what was Jesus' self-understanding of who he was? This is like giving a little bit of ground here, right? This is saying, okay, fine. The Gospels are not a history textbook. Okay. But then can we look at what Jesus said and thought of himself? Because that's not something that the church necessarily created. You know, if it's history, it's wrong. Fine, historical facts. Put them over here for a minute. We're not going to talk about historical facts. We're going to talk about what Jesus' self-understanding was. And that's huge when we think about that. And to illustrate this point, though, we've got to be a little careful because sometimes we want to push people into a corner really quick, and we might know a familiar argument by C.S. Lewis called the trilemma, right, that says, well, Jesus said he was, Jesus, the claims that Jesus made you can't call him a moral teacher. You can't call him a good example. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. Anybody ever hear that before? The trauma, right? And so sometimes I use this once on a guy. I was talking with a fellow actually at Piero's house. We are having a barbecue. And he, he, I was like, here comes the trilemma. <laughs> <laughs> and it like didn't work because he's like, yeah, I know the trilemma. Damn, really? <laughs> we got to be careful of that one, because that one's gotten around, right? And this is illustrating the point that, yeah, an atheist won't believe that he's a liar. Okay, fine, he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. Fine. He's certainly not Lord, but this leads us to kind of where we are right now. Guess what? I think he's a legend. I, don't, I think that what he is that you believe in is not historically reliable. I think that what you believe in is a creation of the church. Sure, maybe he did really exist, but the Jesus that's in here, it's legend, it's myth, it's fairy tale. So sure, I'll give you that. He's not a liar, a lunatic. I certainly don't think he's Lord, but I do think he's a legend. I think he's a myth. Right? Okay, so if he's a legend or a myth, right? But Jesus still actually understood something about himself. What did Jesus understand about himself? That's going to go well beyond just whether this is a myth or not. Let's look at what Jesus said. And so in these mythological Gospels, 
Sorry, guys, I'm getting way behind, but you got notes. <laughs> In these mythological Gospels, Jesus understood himself to be God. In these mythological Gospels, I think I went too far. Jesus understood himself to be God. I do need to go back. Maybe I wasn't that far off. You need to go back one more. One more. Thank you. I know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's worse that it's, it's, it's it on the bottom of the USB device. Oh, yeah, it's down there. Okay. Jesus understood himself to be God. Right? It's dripping water sometimes because it's like been working over time all day long. So it's just a little condensation. You know? So this isn't us proclaiming Jesus to be God. This isn't necessarily, okay, fine. This isn't the church proclaiming Jesus to be God. This is Jesus not even really saying that he's God. This is Jesus operating under the understanding that he is God. That's his self-understanding. He was well aware that he was the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. What does Christ mean? Is that his last name, like Smith or Vreeland or something? Savior, okay, what else? Messiah. Messiah, yeah, it's, it's, it's literally the anointed one. Right? So it's the Messiah. So Jesus, the, Jesus Christ is not his last name, right? It's actually Jesus the Christ. It's his title. It's the anointed one. So if it's the anointed one, we automatically see a connection to the Old Testament because there was one coming to save. Genesis 3, right from the garden said there's going to be someone that's going to come he's going to crush your head right uh, isaiah 53 and a million other places all the psalms that are messianic psalms we're talking about the messiah the epistles of paul paul goes crazy he basically does sometimes doesn't even use jesus he just is christ right so paul certainly thought that he was the messiah um note from mark 8 27 to 30. let me see what that is quickly I'm sure it's important if I put it in there. Oh, okay, yeah, so here's an example. Mark 8, 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets, uh, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Okay, fine. He didn't say he was the Christ. Peter did, and he didn't stop him. Right, so he's operating under that understanding that he is the Christ. Jesus, you can't see that, so I can ask the question, ha. Huh? <laughs> what was Jesus put on the cross for? True, in a theological sense. Claim, claiming to be God. Claiming, yeah. claiming to be God. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What was on his cross? What was the sign that was on his cross? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. I want to talk about history. That's historically provable. <laughs> those things are those things are records. So there was a record that Rome themselves thought that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. Right? So again, Jesus operating in this self-understanding. Right? Also, I thought this was pretty neat. History tells us of another Jesus, right? It's like, you could say, okay, well, fine. Anybody who ran around and called themselves Messiah got crucified. Wrong. <laughs> there was another Jesus. Jesus, son of Ananias, who was arrested in 62 AD, and that was recorded by Josephus. He did not get executed. What happened to him? Nothing. <laughs> they investigated him. They thought he was a crazy person, and they let him free. So what is that telling us? Why is one person called Jesus running around saying he's the Messiah? They bring him in for questioning, and they let him go. This person, Jesus of Nazareth, is running around saying, I'm the Messiah. And he ends up on a cross. Why? They really believed he was the Messiah. <clears throat> a lot of other people they did, too. Right? Yeah. There was pretty good reason to believe that he needed to be taken care of because there was some serious basis to his claims. And they needed him done away with quickly. Right? Otherwise, who cares? Let him go. What's he gonna do? 
So Jesus was executed for claiming to be God. Again, we see that, that Jesus then understanding and other people understanding that Jesus was God. Um, a couple things. I'll try and get through them as quick as I can. Um, he invoked the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament. The great I Am. This is several places, uh, but there's one in John that I really, really like uh, when he's talking about Abraham in John 8.56. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees again. Um, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Watch this. The representation of that name from Exodus 3. Remember Moses in the burning bush? Who, I, who, who should I say is sending me? Tell them I am is sending me. Jesus not only claims to see Abraham before all that, and he uses the divine name. Uh, and they picked up stones to throw at him because they knew exactly what he just claimed at that point. Right? So he invokes the name of Yahweh in direct fulfillment. He said the kingdom of God was at hand among you. We've seen that time and time again in Matthew, haven't we? He was always preaching about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. But he also said that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God was among you, right? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is here. It's him. He's talking about himself as the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, more ways that he understood himself to be God. He referred to himself as the Son of Man. We've seen this time and time again. In Matthew, haven't we? It's one of his favorite names for himself, the Son of Man. Where else do we see Son of Man in the Bible? Ezekiel, we see it a lot in Ezekiel. Daniel. Daniel 7. Yep. All messianic. So if Jesus is running around calling himself the Son of Man, he understands himself to be the Messiah. It's also then tying together the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, right? So now we're not just dealing with the New Testament then, are we? Now we're dealing with the Old Testament. No atheist wants to talk about the Old Testament, (laughs) except if they want to paint God out to be an ogre and a a mean, vicious killer, right? But as far as the, no, we're, we're going deeper than just the historical reliability of the New Testament then. We're talking about the Old Testament. He demonstrated control over creation. How did he do that? Yep, absolutely. You calm the storm. Remember? The fig tree. <laughs> yes, no one will ever eat from you again. Locked on water. Yep. All those things. Those are, that's God's stuff, right? Mm-hmm. He's not running around saying, look at me, I'm God, but he's just doing it. He did many miracles. This was interesting that William Lane Craig brought up too. Jesus never prays for a miracle to be done. He may first express thanks to the Father, but then he affects it himself. That one made me go, really? I guess that's right. You know, we pray for miracles. Jesus never prayed for God to do something. Remember with the five loaves and the the fish, right? He thanked God for it. He broke the bread, but that was it. Poof, he just did it. So he did countless miracles. Again, just walking in his identity as the Messiah. Another one, he spoke and taught, taught with soul authority. What are some examples of that, where he spoke with soul authority or taught with authority? When he told the false consecration group, when he says things like, peace, be still. Yep, when he commands creation. Mm-hmm. Definitely, as authority. Ooh, that's crossing over another one, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when he told the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. The authority. Remember, they got so super ticked. No one has authority to forgive sins but God alone. Duh. That's what I'm doing. What were we going to say, Ron? He taught the temple and he said that on that exact day that scripture was fulfilled. Yep. He spoke with absolute authority. And he quoted Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they wanted to push him off a cliff. Yeah. Oh, another time at the temple with the feast where it was the. The drink offering, and he identifies himself at, in that part of the ceremony as being the great God. Yeah, 
Yeah. So we see this time and time again. People are amazed, astounded, right? Astonished what at his authority. That he taught with such authority and not like one of their scribes, they say. And no one can take his life unless he allows it. No one can take his life unless he allowed it. But when he was 12, he was teaching at the synagogue and the rabbis were listening. He was the teacher. Yeah, yeah. Um, the subtitle to our Matthew series is where Jesus would say, truly I say to you. In the Greek, that word truly is amen. And when we, when we say amen at the end of someone's prayer, we're just agreeing with you know, what they said, right? So Jesus is essentially saying, you know, amen, I'm swearing by my own authority, this is true. Which, when you think about that in the law, it's like because the law tells you that you have to have two or three witnesses to make sure something's true. And Jesus is saying, nope, just me. That's the only thing you need, right? People were continuing to be astonished. What about when uh, the. Uh, after the Beatitudes, right, he's talking about fulfilling the law. And he said, you've heard it written, but I am saying to you. Right, and he keeps ratcheting up that kind of thing. And last one, and there's many more, but I just I tried to grab a couple. He demonstrated control over evil. How did he do that? The legion of pigs. Yeah, casting out demons. And they listened to him, Ooh. right? They said, go. Remember they were bargaining with him? Ooh. Uh, can we go into the pigs? <laughs> yes, you can go into the pigs. Right. There are several accounts of that. Calling out Judas. On the last, Calling out Judas? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, knowing what's in his heart. Yeah. So again, we're not then, see what we're doing? We're getting around, like, fine. The gospel aren't historically reliable. I don't care. Jesus, let's, let's look at the accounts... Now where Jesus is walking around saying, I'm God, look at me. Let's look at what he did and what that meant. So you're getting one level kind of deeper, and you're really subverting this idea that the Gospels aren't historically unreliable. You're looking at what Jesus' self-understanding was, which is huge. So that's just a couple. There are more. It would be a good exercise to go through and, and find some more. Um, okay, a couple minutes. Another response to Jesus being God the Messiah is really who the early church thought him to be as well. The early church unanimously thought of Jesus as the Messiah, God the Son. Right? So again, okay, fine. Gospels aren't reliable. Let's skip the Gospels and let's look at what happened in the first century. What did the first century church think of Jesus? Unanimously they thought Jesus was the Messiah. The Son of God. One quote said, "What's that?" One quote said, "Within twenty years of the crucifixion, a full-blown Christology proclaiming Jesus as God incarnate existed." In twenty years, the church was unanimous. It was the consistent testimony of the church from Scripture. We can see countless Scriptures again, but I'm trying to prove a point here. We can't just bring out Scriptures because people are not going to care. They don't like. They don't think the Bible's true. It's a big deal. Bible says so. Say that I don't care. <laughs> Bible can say whatever it wants, right? Okay, fine. What did the early church say? We literally have hundreds of quotes in this helpful little book for all you nerds out there. Um, the Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs. I think I've talked about this before. This literally goes by topic. And so this topic, the divinity of Christ, and then goes through from the Bible. Here's what the Bible has to say, for example, about the divinity of Christ. And then it goes through every church father that has anything to say on that, and it's all chronological. And this is, I mean, it's still going, about what the church fathers said about Jesus being God. And so it is just the evidence for it. We have hundreds and hundreds of quotes from the first century, second century, third century. It's all the way up. It's unanimous and overwhelming. Okay, fine. The Gospels aren't historically reliable. What did the early church believe? That's, that's, that's very indisputable there. Questions, thoughts, comments? Disparaging remarks? Let's look at another response to Jesus claiming to be God. Well, if he were merely a legend then... 
Why did people react like he was Lord? Again, you're giving a little bit of ground. You're understanding the argument. Fine. If he was a legend, why did people react as if he was Lord? And watch, especially... Ron? Do you think the legend would have died out by now? Absolutely. Especially today, right? Especially in the first century, right? Because not only did you have massive persecution of Christians, right? Think about who the first, some of, bless you, who some of the first converts were. A lot of Jews, right? Was it a violation of God's law, like maybe the first commandment itself to have no other gods before me? And then they're worshiping Jesus? So if he was just a legend, then why were Jews breaking the law of God that they knew since they were toddlers to worship him as Lord? Right? Just another thing that we can, we can think about. And I like this, this last kind of response too. If the Gospels are myths, then they're not written that way. The Gospels are myths. They're not, not, they're not written like a myth. Um, and you're probably not going to be able to see that quote. You can see half that quote. It is in your papers? Hooray! So our friend C.S. Lewis, right? Not only was he an apologist, right? And if you were here for midweek, it was a good one. If you haven't watched that midweek, definitely go back and check out the C.S. Lewis midweek. But he went from an atheist, right, to an agnostic, to, you know, a deist, and then he's a, he's a full-grown Christian theist, right? So he, he tracked that. Not only was he that, right, so he's not, not only valuable for us for that, but he was also one of the world's foremost, if not the world's most foremost authority on literature, English literature at a certain time, right? Oxford professor, all of that. This is what C.S. Lewis has to say. This is just a critique on whether or not the Gospels are written like a myth. So again, if you call it a myth, call it a legend. Let's call in a literary expert and ask him what he thinks if the Gospels actually were written like a legend or a myth. And he says, no, now as a literary historian, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I've read a great deal of legend. Remember this guy wrote Chronicles of Narnia. And I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of the Platonic dialogues, there is no conversation that I know of in ancient literature like the fourth gospel. There is nothing even in modern literature, until about 100 years ago, when the realistic novel came into existence. Think of him as a, as a literary expert and how powerful that is. I wasn't going to say anything, but Lewis brought it out. He's totally right. For setting the, the Didache in the first century church yeah. people, so many of them are what's called Neoplatonist, and he's even recognizing it in there that... The way that Plato even develops the understanding of the moral construct of the human fabric, it, it sinks a little bit more with how this gospel concept is with the nature of humanity, the nature of God and the divine. But that argument to me is so funny because people will often say, you know, the first the first Christians, they don't realize so many of them were actually the educated people of the time. Yeah. Um, many of the of the church fathers um, and the, the the church sisters that were uh, on the martyrs, a lot of them were governors and and Roman citizens with deep education, and a lot of them were Neoplatonist. Um, a chunk of them were to the, to the point to where there actually became like this whole um, meeting about 250, where they had to sit down and talk about the difference between the th the ideas of Plato and Christ. <laughs> uh, That's pretty funny. It, it just it just debunks the whole theory that. Christianity is for the weak-minded. No, those first-century Christians were some of the highest educated ones they had. Yeah. yeah, that's wild. Thank you. Fine, like, call it a legend. Call it a myth. It doesn't look like a myth. <laughs> it's, not even it's not even written like a myth. It's a terrible myth. It's a terrible story. 
There's no plot buildup. There's no <laughs> character development. There's nothing. So just kind of catapulted into this story. Lewis was already anticipating and rebutting the argument that the Gospels and Jesus were a legend. It's fun to think about that, right? So a lot of stuff in there in that big second point there, talking about, you know, just refuting that the Gospels were created by the church. and We can't know the historical Jesus. Anybody ever run across that before? Anybody saying, well, we can't know the real Jesus of history? Yeah, it's, it's, it's there. It's the whole movement, if you ever stumble upon the Jesus Seminar, that's all that's about. Is they're, they're trying to assert that, well, this is just, we don't know what happened to Jesus. We don't know the real historical Jesus, so how can we possibly worship him as God and submit to him? Okay. Objective three. Quick one. Somebody might say, or objection three, Jesus loved and accepted everyone. So that is who he was. Right? Okay, well, I don't believe in the Jesus that you're talking about here. I believe in the Jesus, right? You can get, see this is the selfism worldview coming in. That's not the Jesus I believe in. The Jesus I believe in, just like, yeah, with the flowing hair, he just welcomed everybody, just loved and was kind to everybody. Anybody ever hear that? Hear that a lot, right? Because what's that kind of saying that Jesus is then okay with sin, sin, or everything, or whatever I'm doing? Right? Is that the Jesus in the Bible? <laughs> no. So again, if we know our Bibles, we can easily respond to that and say, "Yeah, the only problem with that is the Bible." Right? And there's two ways we look at that. He was very harsh with the religious leaders, and I preached through Matthew 23 not that long ago in the springtime. Matthew 23 is one giant rant against the religious leaders, right? Just basically cussing them out without using cuss words, of course. Right? Calling them broods of vipers and hypocrites, all of that. Why? Why was he so hard on... Dang it. Sometimes I want that bar to come up just a little more as much as I hate it. <laughs> The religious leaders led people astray from God's law. Right? There was a law. They just what did they what did they do to the law? With the religious leaders, with the Pharisees and the scribes, what did they do to God's they law? They added to it. They added to it a lot, right? <laughs> yeah. And they considered that the means of salvation, right? And they were the arbiters of that. But in so doing, right? That's what Jesus was mad at them for and judging them for, rightfully so. But in so doing, Jesus is saying, well, there's actually a standard and it's my law. And they violate it. So that's why I'm judging them. So the Jesus of the Bible had a standard. And it's God's law. So he can't be okay with everything that everybody does. Right? But they also failed to see Jesus as the Messiah. Right? That was one of the big ones that people think about. The Pharisees and the scribes just didn't, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so, therefore, Jesus is judging them for that as well. And so, guess what? There is exclusivity. That Jesus is the only way. He knows that. That's why the Pharisees were getting judged. So, when you look at how he dealt with the religious leaders, he didn't love and accept everyone. Right? But also look at the way he deals with other people. Right? <clears throat> oh, that one's not there. <laughs> What did Jesus hold us to? Jesus came. Did he relax the law of God? He didn't, right? He increased the law of God. Right? The whole part in Matthew 5, right? Where he quotes the law. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, right? But I say to you, anyone who's angry with your brother, right, is liable to judgment. Right? What about lust? Here he goes. They go off and say, and quoting the law, which is right, you shall not commit adultery. Fine. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Parts. Right? He goes on, <coughs> divorce, also retaliation, loving your enemies, all these crazy things that he keeps ratcheting up the law. Right. So he actually, the Jesus of the Bible, is 
is actually holding us to a higher standard of holiness. And so no, Jesus of the Bible didn't love and accept everyone. And so if you look at the way he treated the religious leaders, if you look at the way he treated others and calling us to a, a higher standard of holiness, we can respond to that. Thoughts, comments, questions, encouraging remarks. On the part where you're talking about how Christ didn't, was not accepting all things and all things, Ron and I had a really interesting conversation this week. And we were talking about the fact that when, when Christ was on the cross, he was between two sinners. Yeah. One of them got told they were going to be better. Yeah. Say. And I think that was... It's true. I think the great... One of the, of the parts of this great mission was the showing and explaining no righteousness. Because I think in adding to the law, they had, they had culturally redefined righteousness. Mm-hmm. And then you see the Messiah going in the cornfield on Sunday, popping grains of, of corn, and then you see him healing on the Sabbath. Yep. And you see him just re-showing them again what real righteousness means. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see how people, oh, Jesus broke the law. But it's so funny no, because if you, there's people that have that same argument about um, having a problem with a God that has parameters on them, mm-hmm. God that can't tolerate all things. Yeah. At the same time, you show him what, how Jesus did define righteousness, and you show them those stories about the grains and the, and the way that he actually did have a, this divine understanding of fairness yeah. and equality yeah. that is better than the, the culture that they already see where it's not correct at. Yeah. It's funny because the righteousness of Christ goes along. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the God of the Bible was never tricked by man. Yeah. He never contradicted himself. Never. And that's a perfect, that, that's a perfect, you need to be perfect to do that. Yeah. And, you know, and he was sinless. Yep. So someone who might say that Jesus loved and accepted everyone, right? They're, they're pulling out those parts of the Bible. That, sure, he was kind to the oppressed and the marginalized and the needy and the people that were sick and the poor and all of that, right? But that doesn't translate to he's okay with my sin. Well, it's the summary of the law, right? They try what's the greatest commandment? You know, he had yeah. said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Yeah. Your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, talk about talk about about walking away with the tail between your legs. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> I mean just maybe whacked them on the head. I mean, yeah. On, they didn't know they didn't know the sin. Yeah. They didn't know how to deal with them. That's why they wanted to kill them. Yeah. They didn't know what to do with them. Wow. But if you repent, He'll forgive you, right? Absolutely. You know, so no matter how bad they were, you know, like the Pharisees. Yeah. If one of them would have said, you know. Well, some of them did. Yeah. Jesus, uh, like like Nicodemus. Paul, Saul. You know, he was, you know. One of them gave his tomb for Jesus. Joseph gave his tomb for Jesus. Yeah. That's right. But that's just, that's just it, Carol, is that, that in order to do that, right, you have to bow the knee. Right. And this all really, we touched on this last time a little bit, but it, it, it's not so much a crisis of evidence, it's a crisis of belief. Mm. Like, I'm just not going to do it. Because if I admit that Jesus is God, then I have to do what he says. And I'm not going to do it. That's where it gets down to. That's the reality of it. Is, is if he really is God. Because you have to do something with Jesus. He existed in history. You could, you could ignore him and reject him. You could... Analyze it and twist it and spin it to say all these things that, you know, well, he never claimed to be God or the Gospels are full of mistakes or whatever else you want to say. But, you know, eventually you have to decide whether or not his claims were, were true. And you could reject them. But if, if they are true, that means that you have to submit to them. Exactly. And that, some people are like, that's just not going to happen. Yeah, and then you see how they start to build arguments, right? right? Yeah, from that worldview right. that says, "Why well, he can't be God? Because if he's God, I have to submit to him." So therefore, here are all the reasons why he's not God. 
Yeah. Same deal from like, you know, if you approach it from an evolutionary standpoint, the creation right. of World War. Like, well, we can't let God be the creator. Because then he might be king, we have to submit yeah. to him. So we start from that standpoint and then right. go from there. Yeah, Sue. I don't know if I'm going to articulate this right. I'm going to do my best. Okay. But you can say to the atheist, I hope you're right. Because if I'm wrong, I die and go wherever. But if you're wrong, then you have a lot to answer to. Yep. To the God who really is. Yep. I heard someone say it once in a slightly different way in the sense of, um, is it worse to live your life dedicated to a God that doesn't exist and work yourself into the best person that you can be, or and then get to the end of it and find out that you're wrong, or live your life and never work that hard and, and don't improve yourself and don't spend time in good community and all of that, and then get to the end of it and be wrong and have to face God and say, I'm wrong. Yeah. His name's kind of like you. Yeah. You can talk about Pascal. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> a famous mathematician, right? He made that's exactly what he's what he's saying. Okay, fine. So if I'm wrong, then all this is meaningless, and poof, we're all just cease to exist, and everything's nothing. But if you're wrong, I wouldn't take that bet. Right, that's what he said. That's the wager. Yeah. His wager was. It's, yeah. it's it's a safer bet anyway. And and as Jenna said, you know, so what? You're gonna live the best, most wholesome life you possibly can anyway. Right. So what's what's the problem here? And again, it's bowing the knee and submitting. I don't want to have that will that says no. I am. I decide what's right or wrong. Oh, right. Yeah, they will know they're wrong at the second coming. Oh yeah. Because they'll realize their eyes will be open. Yep. Uh, not say, but they'll say hills fall on me because it, they recognize the awesome God. That what was said in the Bible is coming true. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that that's that, what, 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 what I'm feeling. Uh, yeah. That I wouldn't want, want that. You know? You yeah, know, it's the worst feeling ever because it's too late. You know, you know you're going to be doomed and you don't believe and you didn't believe that. Yeah, it's it's the biggest thing that's got a nag on people that they just don't want to face, right? It's that conflict that they just, Keller, I think, called it this tension in the soul. He used to ask people, how are you doing with the tension in your soul? It is, it's just for an unbeliever, there's always that tension of all these big worldview questions that you're trying to chase down that are nagging. So you try to find answers or make answers, but... In the end, you know it's, and you're certainly going to know that last day. Sure. Yeah. So if I had a big idea, which I kind of do, kind of do, Jesus is who he says he is. Right. We talk about who Jesus is. Jesus is who he says he is, and not just says in the literal sense. Right. Says in his actions, and says in his fulfillment of the prophecies, and says in his. All the things we talked about, the miracles and control over creation and evil and what people thought of him and the church fathers and all of that. So. Okay. Another book giveaway. Woo! All right, I'm more excited than you guys are. For the book <laughs> this is uh, another one of my textbooks, and I will apologize in advance. I bought this off Amazon. Melanie will know this about me. And verify that sometimes I just buy things on Amazon very quickly. And apparently this is used, but there's no marks in it. It just had this weird sticker sending you to some crazy ministry. And I took that off to avoid you going to that crazy ministry. So I did buy this just the other day, but it came in a little used. So I don't want anybody to be insulted that this is uh, it's not marked up. Well, I bought plenty of stuff on Amazon that shows up, and I'm like, that is not really what I thought it was going to be. Anyway. The perils of shopping <laughs> by your phone on the couch. So this is uh, one of my textbooks for uh, one of my classes, a gentleman named Brant Petrie. It's called The Case for Jesus. You might also be thinking of The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, but this is... This is uh, he... he 
Strobel did it from the journalistic perspective. This is from the academic perspective. But it is a lot of the stuff I was talking about here was really, really good. This is a really good read. Don't be thrown off by the academia of it. It's accessible read. It's not that long. My one major complaint about it is for some reason, and this really irks me as someone who used to be in the publishing industry, they put the page numbers in the publishing biz. We call this the gutter. I don't know why they put the page numbers in the gutter. It's just like you can't, you have to like, you know, I'm used to the page numbers being here. And you got to open the whole. Anyway, minor complaint, cosmetic. <laughs> They're saying you have to read at least some words in order to find the page numbers at least. I guess. If that's most important. Super annoying. There's got to be a reason. <laughs> Anyone would like The Case for Jesus by Brant Petrie. Excellent read. Bridget. It's only, it's only proper for all of your service to us. Okay, we did it, and it's still really hot outside, so. <laughs> we're all staying here. Do you have a question? Can you put the first slide back up? I missed it. It should all be on your thing. Well, but some of it is the fill in the I don't know how to fill in the blanks. That one? Thank you so much. Very easier. That one? Yes, this one. Yes, thank you. Okay. Let me pray first. God, I thank you so much for everybody here tonight. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that we can we can look at Scripture and not simply just quote kind of chapter and verse, Lord, but dig a little deeper into what uh, Jesus was inferring, if you will, by his actions and his self-understanding of who he was. Um, Lord, we pray for our interactions with people as we defend the faith and as we give a reason for the hope that we have within us. Um, Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a sharpness. I pray that we would be ready. And I pray that, especially as it comes to Jesus, that we would understand in our hearts so much of who he is. And we are so thankful, Lord, that we know that we don't just have the external testimony. We have the internal testimony of our hearts, of what Jesus has done by changing our lives and reconciling us to our creator. And we thank you for the truth and the reality of that gospel transformation. We pray for you to make and mature more disciples through Highlands Bible Church and through your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.